The Retirement and IRA Show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier and Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. This is the Retirement and IRA Show coming to you from beautiful northern Colorado. Join us as certified financial planner Jim Saunier, as well as Colorado State University finance instructor and certified financial planner Chris Stein, teach you about IRAs, 401ks, annuities, social security, pension plans, and estate planning in a fun and enjoyable show. Whether you are listening live in Colorado or streaming from their website or iTunes podcast, Jim and Chris want you to know that they're available to help you plan for your retirement. Just visit their website at jimhelps.com. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. And click the Meet the Team button on the homepage. Now here's Jim and Chris with today's show. Well, welcome to the Retirement and IRA Show EDU edition for this week. We're uh, picking up where we left off last week, where Jim was uh, trying to stump us all, particularly me, with a, a quiz, I think entitled something like, are you smarter than a retirement planning student or something along those lines? And uh, we made it about halfway through that questionnaire previously, so we're going to finish that up. There were some fairly interesting questions in there, and uh, I don't remember what my score was so far, but I think we were doing pretty well up to this point. So I think we got a couple. I admit it, I got a couple of wrong when I first tried to answer them. I, I think you got one or two wrong. I, I honestly can't I, remember. I don't remember now. It's a blur. That's a long time it's ago. Like a, That's a whole year, a whole week ago. <laughs> the funny thing is, as I said, the questions get progressively harder. I think what I, in fact, I know what I did at first on the quote unquote easy questions, I way overthought them and started, well, what about this and that and getting deep into it. These quote unquote harder questions I actually found to be easier, but uh, we shall see if you think so, and our listeners as well. Anyways, you can continue with your introduction. Oh, that's pretty much about it. That was it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> kind of a letdown of diving, an introduction. Diving back into those well, questions. Anyways, folks, I'm Jim then, uh, sweating profusely, yeah. I might add. I think today is the hottest day. This summer, it's so been, far. It feels like it. It's pretty darn hot. It is freaking hot out yeah. there. Um, yeah. We're not at triple digits for all of you uh, south of us uh, in the True. very, very arid, hot southwest or southeast where it's humid and hot. Uh, we're certainly not into the triple digits like you guys are, but I think we're hitting 93, maybe 98 today. 96, according to my trusty iPhone. So we're not going to hit... 100 because it's already 330. It's not going to keep getting warmer. But uh, today was by far the hottest day. Did not take long for everything to dry out. Mr. Weiner and Weiner from the other mm, day because we had rain. It's still pretty humid because all that moisture is coming out of the ground with all this heat. Oh, yeah. We have humidity today of probably, what, 12? So <laughs> it, uh, it's all relative, folks. But Colorado is starting to dry out. This is what bothers me. If we get into if you look at the long-term forecast it's going to be hot for the next uh 10 days plus 
that all this excess grass that has grown, I've never seen it this tall. The, the open fields out here, folks, have prairie grass. It is tall. Have you seen it, Chris? I mean, there's some areas two and a half, three feet tall. I have never seen prairie grass this tall. If this dries out, it's only going to take one idiot doing something and boom. Because we get these winds in the fall, folks. I think they begin like October-ish, Chris. October, November, December. It's just the windy season. Well, Chris grew up in Wyoming. Wyoming is, I think, Cheyenne Indian for land of much wind. I don't know, but it's windy as hell up in Wyoming. Mm -hmm. And Colorado gets that beginning in October, and it causes massive fires, and that's my big fear. So let's hope that doesn't happen. But today is hot, so I have my iced coffee, and I'm in the penthouse suite, as Chris likes to put it, otherwise known as the attic, which Mm -hmm. does not get the airflow that the rest of the office has. Yeah, and it's mostly the lack of space for decent insulation up there so i do i do pity you just a little bit on a day like this because that attic gets pretty toasty oh attic you you admitted mm-hmm. it you finally well, i wanted to use the, i want to use the terminology you'd understand oh yes so. it was penthouse in the middle of winter it's penthouse <laughs> in the summer he's going to cut me some slack i'm in the <laughs> attic and the attic is freaking hot mm. so y'all should appreciate what i'm doing all righty so we're going to pick up where we left off. I jokingly say, are you smarter than a fifth grader? I really do think that was a game show at one point, wasn't it? And Jeff Foxworthy was the host. I'm going on a limb there, but I think there was. A- yeah, it was Jeff. Yeah. Are you smarter than a fifth grader was the, yeah. Yeah. Yep. And I think it was adults and fifth graders. And it was a cute little show. I remember it vaguely, but this is I You Smarter Than a Financial Planning Student. I don't have my trusty iPad with me where I had everything saved. I am actually going back to analog today for sure. I printed out a stack of emails. Uh, Y'all laughed at me because for years I did it this way, and then I started trying to do it electronically. Do you realize what happens when you don't have your electronic device with you, folks? You're SOL. And you haven't embraced the concept of the cloud? I learned Mm -hmm. today the importance of making sure everything I put on my iPad, which I thought automatically got backed up to, quote-unquote, the cloud, doesn't work. If it's just on your iPad, I can't get it off of my iCloud or iTunes, whatever they call it, account. I have to be actually on the iPad, which I don't know. Unless I'm doing it wrong, which wouldn't be hard for me to do. There is a way to do it, so it syncs up there. So, Well, apparently I'm not doing that. And Chris also informed me because we were supposed to do something else today, and it's on my laptop at home. And he said to me, why don't you have it in the cloud in, in Box? We have a thing called Box. And I had no good reason. I felt like the, the you know the little you know twelve year old with the parent is saying, "Why did you do that?" And you have no good reason, and you're just kind of sheeplessly looking. So uh, I'm learning, folks, that the cloud exists for a reason. Okay, next question: Are you smarter than a fifth grader? Or are you smarter than a financial planning student? Are you ready, Chris? I'm as ready as I'll ever be. <laughs> ready as you'll ever be. <laughs> Remember, these are going to start to get progressively harder. So the first seven or eight, I forget how many we did, were the easy ones. Now we're getting, I guess we're in the moderate right now, and in a couple of questions we'll be in the, the quote-unquote hard. Which money disorder is characterized as the inability to say no when someone, such as your family member, continues to ask you for money? So what is the name of that disorder as a, 
I, to me, it should be smarten up, you idiot, but that's not one of the answers. Is it financial dependence, financial enabling, financial denial, or financial... And, 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 oh, damn it, I should have prepped this word. Enmeshment? Did I nail it? Pretty close, yeah. How do you pronounce it? Enmeshment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very good. Very good. All right. Yeah. I nailed it. Nailed it, folks. Nailed it. So which one is it when you can't say no to a family member repeatedly asking you for money? Hmm. Financial dependence, uh, enabling, denial, or enmeshment? Well, it's got to be enabling or enmeshment, but I've never heard enmeshment, so I'm going to have to go with enabling. What sound effects do you have handy? Do you have the clap, 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 or the beep, beep, beep? Mm, I have everything. All right. Uh, give yourself a clap. Oh, good. Thank goodness. According to the answer, financial enabling is the practical inability to say no when people ask for money. It harms both you and the recipient. Although I will say the recipient may claim it's not really harming them much. Mm-hmm. But I, I see where they're going with this. It's, mm-hmm. It doesn't really apply. It's really measuring, I think, the student's ability to memorize topics and not yeah. not much I, else. I agree to that one because it's there's so many nuances to what could be the relationship going on here that having a simple description like that is a little... Exactly. It's like someone came up with something to just put in an academic textbook and uh, have a definition for on a test, to be honest with you. <laughs> That's what it feels like And remember, me. folks, these are <laughs> questions from an actual test. I don't right. have the article. It's on my iPad. Yeah. But you knew this this program. What was it again? Do you remember off the top of your head? Because this is a legitimate program yeah, and this legitimate is a, questions. It's like a knowledge bowl kind of a situation at the Financial Planning Association meetings that they do where they will – invite students from um, financial planning programs around the country from different universities. And if they choose to, they don't have to, because I've taken students to these conferences and we didn't participate in those things. But if they choose to, they can do a uh, mock um, retirement plan or financial plan presentation uh, to some hypothetical clients that are judges. And then there's also kind of the funner part, which I, I watch those just to see what they put out. But then the funner part is actually this kind of knowledge bowl style um, quiz show, if you will, on stage with uh, with teams of students. And, and that's where these questions come from. Okay. The part of what I'm trying to do on this EDU isn't just to ask seven or eight fun questions again today and then wrap it all up. It's to kind of give you some food for thought. So I, I can actually, I could mm-hmm. do a whole show on what I'm about to go into, and I won't, mm. because first, Chris will kill me. We're running short on time. Uh, and we also want to get through these questions. But this is a behavioral question. Mm-hmm. And there are some behavioral biases that affect people a lot, especially with retirement planning. One of them, and I don't even know if it has a name to it, but it's part of why I came up with the concept of the fun number approach to retirement planning is I say all the time, emotional risk. And that is anecdotally, but I've been doing this for 20, gosh, it's going to be 20. You know, I'm going to be 60 next week, Chris. I've heard that. Yeah. God, that sucks. But uh, you're going to have my chocolate cake. Cheap, cheap, cheap 
chocolate cake with the cheapest white frosting you can find? It's hard to do, but I'm going to see if maybe a local convenience store has a cake. No, like no, no. Left I want to step up above. Do not come in with a 7-Eleven chocolate cake. Walmart's fine. Even a King Supers. How about a Swiss roll? No. A little Debbie Swiss <laughs> it's a roll. Hostess or a little? No, 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 no. I just, folks, I hate those rich, deep German chocolate cakes with the cream cheese frosting that everybody goes gaga, Google. Oh, I hate that. Give me a Walmart bakery chocolate cake that is so puffed up with air. It's like eating a sponge. It's got all those little holes in the cake and just cheap white frosting. I, I just love that. In fact, I call my birthday the uh, chocolate cake day. And that's that's really the only time of the year I'll eat crap like that is on my birthday. But uh, just dropping subtle hints for Chris. Let's see if I get a cake next. I'll tell you all next Tuesday when we're recording <laughs> Great. if I got my cake on Monday. Uh, anyways, what I want to get into, folks, the emotional risk of retirement. It's very real. It's a behavioral issue. And it's the inability We've seen it anecdotally for 24 years. People retiring and not feeling comfortable spending their money, what they spent their entire lives, 25, 30, 35, 40 years to amass during the accumulation phase to grow half a million, a million, two million, three million, eight million, whatever you may have of wealth, you're loath to spend it. Because you spent all your time amassing it and teaching you to save, to put in, to don't spend, to lower your fees. When it comes time to spend, you don't want to do it. And you don't want to do it for either one or two reasons. And again, I'm no behavioral scientist. This is just things that I have observed. For one of two reasons. First, you just hate to see your portfolio fall. It's... it's, it's aghast it to you. You created this. You grew it. And I kind of liken it, and I am not kidding you folks, to harvesting vegetables for me. This morning, I harvested four of seven heads of red romaine lettuce. I only got seven. I grew seven. And I know I have to harvest them because with this excessive heat, they're going to bolt pretty soon. But even if it wasn't this hot... I liked seeing them. I liked going out and watching them and and nurturing them and seeing them grow. But I knew I had to harvest them. Chris has one. My friend Blondie is going to get one. I'm going to give her it tonight. I gave one to my cleaning lady. And the fourth one is for my buddy Jeff, who lives across the street from me. But I was, Chris, a little hesitant to cut and take something that I spent granted just a few months, not a whole lifetime, to grow. So I can imagine people who who fall victim to this. When you spend 30 years amassing, say, $3 million of wealth, I think you've seen it as well, Chris. Some people just don't want to spend it, correct? It's a more common problem than you might believe if you're not in that phase yet of your own life. It's, It's hard to imagine that you would, you know, have have that struggle, but it's that struggle is all too real and all too common. Exactly. You see that constantly. So that's one behavioral reason why you don't want to spend your money. The other reason you fear not having enough later. 
Well, I could address that one through the concept of the fun number. When I would see people reluctant to spend, I asked them why. And these were the two main reasons they told me. I just don't like that I grew this. I, I created it. It's, it's hard for me to, to watch it go down, Jim. Or others say, I just worry that I'm going to need it later. And again, I shared that ex- the, the story of the person who was bought the truck and was going to buy a teardrop camper, and they were going to drive around the whole lower 48 and visit every national park. That was their, their little thing they wanted to do in retirement. And shortly after he first retired, he buys the truck, and then he tells me he's going to wait a couple of years before he buys the teardrop because he just spent, and I think it was 30-something thousand, but at the time, that was a lot of money, on a Toyota Tacoma pickup truck. And he couldn't go out and buy the teardrop camper now. I've, I've got to wait. I can't spend it yet. I had to sit that guy down and show him that you could spend it, and gratefully he did, and they started their, their little trip session. The fun number helps deal with the latter. The former, your inability to, to watch it go down, I don't know if there's any way to overcome that, short of just sharing the many stories that I share with all of you. My own, yes, I'm not trying to beat that horse to death, but that stroke should have killed me, but it didn't. It should have paralyzed me, but it didn't, but it easily could have. My point is, literally, folks, it came out of nowhere. I watched the New England Patriots lose, and people jokingly say that's what caused my stroke, but I saw them lose in 2020, which was new for us. Brady had just left. I wasn't used to that for 20 years, and I wasn't used to the Patriots losing. But that's not why I had my stroke. But the point is, I was on the couch watching the Patriots lose. I go outside to cut firewood. 30 minutes later, I'm in a life and death situation on the floor of my barn. It happened that fast. And sadly, Chris, without mentioning names, you know because you knew these people as well. The I don't want to say countless. We could count them on probably less than a dozen over the past few years. But sadly, clients who passed away far sooner than they ever imagined, correct? Yeah, it happens. And the odds, I mean, when you're dealing with enough people, there's going to be a fair chunk that, that live much shorter than average and a fair chunk that live much longer than average. And and so, you know, it, it's these people are just the that end of the spectrum, if you will. And we all hope it doesn't happen to us or people we know, but it does happen to people out there. And... Uh, not that you can go around living your whole life with that uh, fear driving everything, but it's that chance of you being on the short end of that mortality timeline that I, I think you know kind of really feeds into doing what you can to enjoy yourself and enrich your life and experience with your family and things uh, sooner than later to, to the degree to which you can pull that off. Right, that it's it's not throw everything out and spend all your money in a year because you might die next year. That's obviously excessive and irrational. But taking efforts to embellish your go go period, right? I think is rewarding. I think I think people are are seeing a lot of value in that particular approach. It's just the the challenges. Most of traditional retirement planning doesn't isn't geared towards doing that specifically. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So. The fun number concept could theoretically help with that as well. 
Because once you have that fund number, once you walk through, again, secure minimum dignity floor, isolate it, satisfy it with secure income, determine what your pre-delayed secure income shortage is and put assets aside, post-delay secure income shortage, put assets aside, address aging, which is huge. We're not going to get into it in today's podcast. Put those dollars aside. Your guaranteed inheritance, if that's important to you, those dollars are isolated and aside. A buffer or reserve for, for later in retirement, just in case. And then the final dollars that are left is your fund number. Maybe if you walked through that exercise, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, go back and listen to prior podcasts. We did a whole series. I think it was last year. might have been a little bit, might have been the year before. I don't know. Everything's a blur when you hit 60. But we did a, a series on the fund number concept. Learn that. We believe passionately in it. If you don't like it, then ignore it. You might only like some of our thoughts. Take from us what you can and apply the rest to yourself. But to me, if you had that true fund number, let's just say you had a $3 million portfolio and you did the calculation and your fund number is $1.2 million, just making that up after everything else is taken care of, maybe you could start to look at that $1.2 a little differently and say, okay, these dollars, I, I need, that's for me to consume. The other dollars have specific tasks. I'm going to consume them, but there's different tasks and I'll manage them. I don't know. Maybe that would help. But what I wanted to share as well is that there are other biases that can affect people. And I'm going to go through these quickly, but these are the ones that I see a lot. And I want people to be at least aware of them. Put your guard up for these. These, these can be nasty ones and they can come to you um, in inopportune times. Recency bias. I'm sure Chris knows that he has no idea where I'm going with this. He's never even heard these. I'll see if he knows what these are. I mean, are. I've never heard these. No, you, you, never... didn't, you didn't invent these. Chris, that wasn't what I meant. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay. I didn't talk to him ahead of time and tell oh, him yeah. that I have these three biases mm -hmm. that I see people falling mm -hmm. victim to a lot. That's mm -hmm. what I meant. You teach this for Pete's sakes. I know you know what this is. <laughs> Recency bias can cause problems because it freaks people out. What's recency bias, Chris? Well, it's when you apply too much weight to recent information when it's really not warranted to be considered any more valuable or useful in your decision-making than information that's a bit older. So it's, it's really just like it sounds. You're biased towards recent information, and you're letting that over- um, influence, overly influence your decision-making process when you really should be stepping back and looking at, at a broader, more historical situation. And the best way to look at it is people who buy stocks when they're going up, hitting all-time highs, and selling stocks when they're going down because they're panicking like crazy. That's recency bias, folks, fear and greed, but it's recency bias. When stocks are going down, oh my God, Chris, they're going to go down forever. When stocks are going up, hitting all-time highs, oh my God, Chris, is going to keep going up forever. That's recency bias. And you can find other examples. Don't let recency bias sway you, especially when you're doing your retirement planning. The next ones, I, you, you, you should be able to nail these. All our listeners should. Framing. Framing is a bias that can often be used. The next two are biases that, in my opinion, the industry, 
the financial services industry. I don't want to say Wall Street because it is a part of Wall Street investments, but also planners can use to their advantage. So framing is a human bias that does cause problems, maybe not so much for many, many of you who are here listening, because you guys are smart. That's why you're listening here. You're all VG Vanguardian engineers. But do you know framing, Chris, and where that might impact, not necessarily in retirement, but in financial services industry or, or things that people might be swayed to do? Mm-hmm. Well, it really, it's, it's where the, the way in which the information is presented influences your interpretation of that information. So it's a way of when you give people um, maybe a, a limit, limited choices in, in decision making or you describe something in a more optimistic way versus more, something that might be considered a more pessimistic way in the way it's framed or presented to people, um, and where it's used in the financial services industry is you can obviously, if you can influence people's interpretation of information by the way you frame it or deliver it to them, you can use that to your advantage as a salesperson to sell them stuff and and take advantage of that and, and, and put your thumb on the scales of justice, if you will, by the way you present the information to them. You nailed it. I mean, that, that hits the nail on the head. You see framing a lot in our industry, yes, but you see it a lot in the food industry. And mm-hmm. the ones that I like to allude to, because I'm a, I, I, I grew up, folks, addicted to sugar. I would mainline it into me if I could. I loved sugar, and I just would eat sugar. Pixie sticks. Remember pixie mm-hmm. sticks? There was nothing but sugar. And I would eat those till the cows came home. And I don't want to say lately, but for probably about the past six, seven years— uh, I have just been anti-sugar and slowly taking it out of my diet. And I'll tell you, folks, I never was a smoker and addicted to nicotine, but I have heard that sugar can be as addictive as nicotine. I pity people trying to quit um, uh, smoking because it was hard for me to quit sugar. That's why my chocolate cake is one day a year, chocolate cake day, my birthday. Other than that, you don't find me eating that crap. But I used to eat that like crazy Sugar was a hard one to overcome. But you see in the the food industry sometimes, you might see something that says five grams sugar and with a big exclamation point after it. And people might think, wow, that isn't much, five grams of sugar. But few people are looking at the service size, the serving size. And I see this all the time. And you start looking at the serving size and it might say 20 grams. Well, what sounds better, five grams sugar or 25% sugar? Which one are you going to buy, Chris? Well, I like the smaller number. Exactly. That <laughs> sounds, sounds harmless. Five grams. That isn't much. Yeah. But relative to the serving size, 25. It's the same thing. Five grams sugar or 25% sugar. Gee, I'm going to buy the one with five grams sugar. I have seen packages before where it, they might appear to be the less healthy option, but if you start to do the math, it actually has less sugar in it than the quote-unquote one that's marketed as more healthy. So it's just how something is marketed. Uh, you see it again uh, with, with um, uh, hamburger. You might see something that says 80% lean meat. That sounds pretty good. You wouldn't want to put on the label, contains 20% beef fat, 20% beef fat. <laughs> Well, who the hell wants to buy something of 20% beef fat? 
But 80% lean, oh, that's great. That's framing, folks. How does it affect you? Honestly, you see it a lot in where people either vilify a certain product or love a certain product and will present it in a way to sway you to also vilify that product or love that product. And it's not just annuities, but you see that a lot. You see investment advisor reps or registered representatives, which are brokers or um, investment advisor reps are advisors supposed to act as a fiduciary. You could see either of those two people either really loving or hating a certain product, and they're going to frame that product in a manner to either get you to hate it, so you go to what they like, which perhaps might be you should hate this income annuity, and instead you should love letting me manage your assets. You should hate an evil commission, but you should love a harmless, innocent 1% fee. That sounds so low, 1%. Well, if you're only making 4% or 5% in a year, they're taking 20 to 25% of your your earnings. Of course, they're not going to market themselves that way. And I'm only going to take 25% of your earnings. (laughs) Really? I'm only going to take 1%. Oh, gee, that sounds innocent. That's framing. So keep your eyes open open for the games. That's all I'm saying. And the final one that I always warn people about, and again, it has to do with the industry. And yes, please don't email me hate mail. It's just my issue with the industry. If you're an industry person listening, layering. Layering is also not just a a financial service industry. Any type of of private industry is is getting into layering. Uh, Amazon layers big time with Prime and Walmart's getting into it with Walmart Plus and all these other subscription services. What's layering, Chris? Well, that's where when there's something negative, if you will, typically, uh, oftentimes a, a fee or a cost, that if you put enough layers of decision-making and steps between you and that negative thing, it will lessen the effect on you, or at least your perceived uh, effect on you. Um, that's probably you know, Chris, Chris is right. Decent way of and, and the, describing it, but and not how it has to do in mm-hmm. the financial services mm-hmm. industry. And sorry if I talked over you, Chris. I didn't mean that. No, Were okay. you done? Yes. Mm-hmm. Is the quote unquote one percent fee. And there's nothing against an AUM fee. There's nothing against a 1% AUM fee. Chris, do we have a 1% AUM fee? Uh, Yes, we do. (laughs) Absolutely. We charge 1% of assets. What makes us different is we only do it up to a certain price and then we stop. And it's generally, if you have more than $400,000 with us, we're not going to get deep into what we do, but anything more than four hundred, maybe five hundred on the the extreme end, uh, you don't pay anything else on. So whether we're managing 400000 or $4 million, you pay the same price. We cap our fee. Now, the industry does it. That's what makes us different. But we do base it off of a 1% fee. It's just easier that way for us and for the client. So if you have a $4,000 capped fee and you have a $4 million portfolio, we're going to strike up an agreement with you where you pay 1% of the first 400000 0% after that. It effectively caps your fee. That 1% fee comes out of your account. It's easier, especially if you have an IRA. You want it coming out of the IRA because it comes out tax-free. But that's a form of layering in the sense there is 
you're not writing the check to us. If you had a $4,000 capped fee and a $4 million portfolio, you're still going to pay us $1,000 a quarter. You could pay us with a check if you'd like, but no one ever does, especially with an IRA. You're crazy. Take it out of the IRA. It's tax-free. But if you were writing the check yourself, especially to an uncapped AUM person, and you have $4 million and they're charging you 1% or $40,000 a year or $10,000 a quarter, Chris, if you think people had to write a $10,000 check every three months and mail it to their investment advisor, do you think there'd be a little more kickback? I think so. It's exa- I make the same point with income taxes as well. That they're just kind of taken out. You just miss them. You don't. You get to the point where you're ignoring it even happens because you you never receive that money in the first place. Whereas if someone had got their gross amount of pay every single month and then had to turn around and write a check to the IRS for their taxes, I think they'd feel very differently about that experience than the way it happens now. And it's exactly the same kind of circumstance as what you described. Yep, that's layering, folks. It puts a layer between you and your money. You're not physically writing the check. That's why retirees complain to us more about taxes, even though they're probably paying less in taxes than they were, because they're actually paying the taxes. It's no longer coming out of their pay, where it's easy for us to look at the amount of the check. Well, we don't get checks anymore, but the electronic deposit. That's layering. The government figured that out a long time ago with income taxes. It's often been said jokingly, but it is true. If people had to write the check every quarter to the government, there would have been a tax revolt in this country years ago. Layering, folks. Layering. Pay attention to all of those behavioral finance things. Okay. And and no, folks, I'm not trying to just take away from the questions. The, the point of the EDU show wasn't to just ask these, these college-level questions. It was to just get your, your juices flowing and start thinking of things. Pay attention to behavioral biases. They're huge, and the industry knows it. And they are going to prey upon you like anything, especially with that uncapped AUM fee. Ugh, don't get me going on that. All right. Next question. You ready? Yes. Yeah, already. I don't make up these names, but these are people's names. Andy, Bruce, and Charles. Sounds like a joke. Walk into a bar. No. Mm -hmm. Andy, Bruce, and Charles are equal owners of a business. They each contribute one. Oh, this one. I'm wondering if you're going to get this one. Mm. Hmm. I did get this one. I I, I will tell you that. You can do it. You can do it. This, This... you don't have to know much about insurance. This is an insurance question. You don't have to know diddly squat about insurance. Just think this through, listeners. And Chris, I think Chris will get this one. Uh, think it through. Andy, Bruce, and Charles are equal owners of a business. They each contributed $100,000 to open the business. And the business today is worth $1.2 million. They are now considering a cross-purchase buy-sell agreement. I'll explain in a minute what that is, folks. How many life insurance policies need to be issued to fund this agreement? Okay, what is a cross-purchase buy-sell agreement? It's where all of them are buying life insurance on each other's lives. 
So if one of them die, the other two will receive enough money to buy out the estate of the deceased individual. A lot of businesses do that. So family members of the deceased individual can't step in and muck up operations. Maybe the spouse A, I don't want to say husband and wife nowadays, it gets you in trouble, but spouse A is very, very involved, but spouse B is just an idiot. And the other two business owners hate him or her. Don't like them. Want nothing to do with them. And if that person died, you laughing? A little bit. You implying that Melissa would not want to work with me? <laughs> Hard to say. <laughs> I like Melissa. Anyways, the point is, if they aren't going to want to work with that spouse, they want to be able to buy that spouse out. So they agree to this ahead of time, and they have to do all this cross-purchase. How many policies will it take for this is a very this is just measuring the student's ability to understand the concept. There's a lot more nuances to this than as easy as this question shows. But how many policies will you need if there's three partners? Mm-hmm. How many policies? And I the answer has the dollar amounts too. And what face amount? What face amount does each policy have to have in order again to buy out? It's worth one point two million. They each put a hundred thousand in or three hundred thousand. Well, they need six policies because you've got to for each person you've got to be insured against either of the other two passing away. Need to have those policies and um since the remaining two would buy out the the estate of the you know the the family members of the deceased person they'd have to come together to f- come up with the 400 so between the two of them so each policy's got to be $200,000 cup 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 well i have the sound effect you don't have to make that weird sound with your okay. mouth <laughs> i think my rendition was just as good <laughs> Yes, Chris is right. Mm -hmm. So the buy-sell agreement would be set up exactly that. Six $200,000 life insurance policies across the three of them. That way, if one dies, $400,000 is paid out and can pay off the spouse. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, as you know, the business continues to grow. Valuation grows. Mm -hmm. You can do different type of life insurance policies designed to increase, to keep pace, and things of this nature. I think they were just trying to measure the student's ability at a very basic level to figure something like this out. But interesting question. Doesn't really apply much to retirement planning, so we'll move on. But very good, Chris. You you nailed it. Excellent. All right. This next one kind of is definitely, I don't even want to say kind of, definitely is a retirement-related question. But again, just really measuring the student's ability to memorize definitions because there's no practical... That's the one thing I always had with tests. They're not just measuring a definition. Okay, I know what that means, but do I know how to apply it? And there's nothing here on how to apply the concept. But it says, Estelle is updating her estate documents. She would like her son to have control over her finances but only if she is incapacitated and unable to make her own decisions. Which of the following estate documents would best fit that need? 
Okay, so you have a woman, wants her son to be able to help her, but only if she is incapacitated and cannot make a legal decision. Would Estelle want to set up a healthcare proxy, a durable power of attorney, a springing power of attorney, or a general power of attorney? What were the choices again? What was the first one? <laughs> healthcare proxy, ah, mm-hmm. durable power of attorney, springing power of attorney, or general power of attorney. I think it's a springing power of attorney in this particular case. Okay. And folks, the answer is... Clap, 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 clap. Yep, that's correct. So the only thing that I really want to mention here is the differences here that's mm-hmm. going on. It's not a healthcare proxy, as, as everybody knows. Uh, that doesn't have anything to do with help Estelle with, with her uh, personal finances. A durable power of attorney is a power of attorney that, when created, and 99%, I don't want to say 99, but the vast, 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 vast majority of powers of attorney, adorable power of his attorney, that you would create through an attorney, and hopefully you're not going to create, or your attorney isn't going to create just the boilerplate generic printed out from their software without putting any creative editing in at all. I've seen that all too many times, and they're, they're I don't want to say they're worthless, they're they're better than not having anything, but it's kind of like using toilet paper in the bathroom rather than a nice shaman. Excuse me, not toilet paper, sandpaper in the bathroom rather than a nice shaman. It'll work, but it's not going to work all that great. You want the nice shaman. So you want an attorney who's actually going to edit the power of attorney document and really dig into the nuances. And, and when we get the attorney, we do have an attorney that's going to start coming on the show. When we can nail down a time, he's going to start getting into a lot of these topics. Okay. The durable power of attorney, the big thing with that is the minute you put that in effect, that agent who is assigned to help you has what, Chris? The power of attorney. Right away. It's set up right away. So they theoretically could start doing things. And that was the key in this question. It said Estelle wants to give her son that effect, but not until she is disabled. Prior to that, she doesn't want him to have any rights to get at her stuff or whatever she gave him the power to do in the power of attorney. Now, I'm not saying Estelle doesn't really trust her son. I don't know. A lot of attorneys don't like springing power of attorneys, and a lot of attorneys love springing power of attorneys. So you may want to talk to your attorney about their biases and why do they have them and which one should you consider. But to me, Chris, the fear that someone has that the person is going to have immediate powers If you fear them having immediate powers while you have full cognitive abilities, why do you feel comfortable giving them the power when you have no cognitive abilities anymore? If you fear them when you could easily monitor and see that they might be doing something nefarious, why the hell do you want to give them the power when you can't be doing that? It's always made me scratch my head. But I digress. A durable power of attorney, the person, theoretic, not theoretically, they do. They have the ability right away to start doing things on your accounts because you just granted them the power. A springing power of attorney says, no, we're going to set it all up, 
but you can't do anything. You can't get your grubby little hands on my money until I can no longer take care of myself and I'm declared mentally incompetent. Then here are the keys. Go go have fun. I trust you. You, you follow what I'm saying there, Chris? Yeah, I want to clean it up a little more okay. than that. You clean in it that, up. Um, both a general and a durable gives them the immediate rights, and that's what differs from a springing. Springing, a, an event has to happen for the power of attorney to grant its powers to to the person. The um, the difference in where the word durable comes in is the durable power of attorney still works and is still in effect after you become disabled or you know you you're you're not able to make decisions for yourself something happens to you where a general power of attorney stops when you can't you know when you lose you're incapacitated in some way that's why a general and durable have those two different words they're both on the front end exactly the same Yes, and let's dig down that hole a little bit more then, as since we're talking about this. In a durable power of attorney, as Chris said, it continues. It's immediate. It takes effect immediately mm-hmm. and continues even after incapacitation. Right. Springing does not take effect until you are incapacitated. And generally, it right. takes two physicians to independently confirm you are incapacitated and cannot make legal decisions for yourself. The general power of attorney stops if you become incapacitated. Um, When I was, where was I? I was here. Not literally here. I'm trying to think. I thought I was out hunting. It's when I was buying my first home in Colorado. And I was somewhere, and I needed a cosign back then, folks. And my mom cosigned on the mortgage. And I remember being out in a hotel room. I can't remember exactly the whole story. We ended up putting, or she put a general power of attorney in place to allow me to sign for her during closing. It was limited to just that task, only for that period of time. Some very astute listener, and I hope he or she, and I can't remember if it was a, a man or a woman, and I never mentioned this on the podcast, and it just literally popped into my head now because that's how this works this being the head on my shoulders remember last year chris when i went i think it was november-ish to the schwab conference in denver and i only went because it was in denver Mm -hmm. and td ameritrade who we were with was bought out by the evil empire which is what i used to call schwab now i actually like them as i got to know them a little bit better but um remember when i was talking down there and TD Ameritrade had no way for someone to put what is called a trade authorization in place, which is essentially a general power of attorney to allow people to make trades. And TD never had one, and Schwab wasn't sure if they have. Nobody there could figure it out, but eventually they found a document and sent it to me. And I didn't read through the whole document, and I talked about it on the podcast. Well, a very astute listener went and got it and wrote to me and said, Hey, Jim, you might want to point out, it's just a general power of attorney document. The Schwab document does not allow someone to continue Mm -hmm. trading and managing the account if the account owner becomes incapacitated. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize that, and that's huge. That is huge. So a general power of attorney is generally not going to allow anything at incapacitation or 
It might be for a very specific limited task, like in my mom's case. So for those of you who may have listened to our podcast months ago or did this yourself through Vanguard or Fidelity or Schwab, you can't do it through TD because they didn't have one, have these, they're called trade authorizations usually in, in the industry, which are a power of attorney form between the custodian, you, and your agent. Check to see if yours is durable or general. Because the Schwab one is general. And the listener said, what good is this going to do me, Jim, if I become incapacitated? And he had a good point. Not going to do you much good at all. Now, it could do you something. You might be thinking, what's it going to help with? Well, what if you're going to be out of the country on a cruise or something? I saw uh, online that, did you see this? A a ship, a a, a small one, is only going to hold, I think, 1,200 people. So it's not a massively huge cruise ship is going to do an around-the-world cruise over the next three years. And it's completely sold out. And it begins at $30,000 a year and goes up from there. And it includes all your food and this, that, and the other thing. And the more you pay, the better your room. I think for $30,000, you are probably in the bowels of the ship, like the, the you know third-class passengers on the Titanic. I don't know. But... It's going to go around the world for three years and visit every country, at least every country that touches water. I thought that was kind of neat. And I was almost thinking, wow, I wonder if I would like to do that. Then I thought, no, I'll get bored as hell on a ship for three years. But there's where something like the general power of attorney that Schwab has might come in handy. Mm -hmm. You're going to allow some, hey, when I'm gone... Uh, can you here? I'm, I'm naming you as someone who can make trades, and uh, you and I can keep in touch via email, and I'll check at every port or whatever, and you can make the trades. So there is still a place for that Schwab form, but it's certainly not going to help you if you become incapacitated. So pay attention to your power of attorney forms, folks. That's what I'm saying, and update them on a regular basis every three to five years. Mm-hmm. Definitely update them. Okay, next question. You ready? I'm ready. You should get, you will get this. I'm, I'm, there's no should, there's a will here for Chris. Now, listeners, I have no idea. But Chris, you're going to nail this. Which of the following is not an element of a completed gift? This is very important when it comes to trusts, folks, and when it comes to gift and estate taxes. What is a gift? Well, the government defines what a gift is. And if it has all the elements, it's a legitimate gift. If it doesn't have all the elements, it's not a gift. And it could get pulled back into your estate, subject to taxes. Okay, you ready? Ready. Which of the following is not an element of a gift? A, donor must have intent to make a voluntary transfer. Now, remember, folks, this is which one is false, in in other words. Donor must have intent to make a voluntary transfer, donor must retain dominion and control over the gifted property, donor must take, donee, excuse me, donee, this person getting the gift, the lucky guy. Yeah, that you just kind of changed the second one a little substantially there. Donor must retain dominion and control over the property gifted? I thought you said donee. Oh, did I say donee? No, I said donor. Well, you originally said donor and then... You started saying donee. I don't know. All of a sudden, I want a donut. (laughs) 
Okay. So is the second one donor or doni? Dona. Okay. D O N O A. Got it. Okay. okay. Doni, the next one. Mm-hmm. That's the E, doni. Mm-hmm. The person receiving it, the lucky guy. Lucky guy must take delivery of the gift. Mm-hmm. Donor, the giver, donor, must be competent to make the gift. Mm-hmm. Which one is not an element of a completed gift? Well, the second one is not only not an element, it actually expressly makes it not a gift. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so. So, yeah, the donor cannot retain dominion or control over it, or it's not a completed gift. So the whole intent for it to complete is it now becomes under the control and dominion of the donee, the recipient, the lucky guy. This comes into play, folks, a lot with estate planning. So for those of you who live in the uh, – Google it real quick. I think there's 11 community property states, but there's 16 states that charge an estate tax. I think it's 16, folks. It's if, if, if I'm right on that one, give, give me extra credit. But I think it's 16 states have an estate tax. You said 16? Let's I said see 16. And I'm just pulling that from my memory. But, and are there 11 community property states? Only 17 states oh! and the D- District of Columbia currently levying a state or inheritance tax. So maybe you're ah, right if okay. I subtract out the inheritance, inheritance tax, tax states. Yes. So let me look a little. You keep talking okay. and all. Where I'm going with this, when it comes to estate taxes, the taxes that might be owed on your assets at your death, and if you live in a state that charges in estate tax, and there's quite a few of you, if you live in one of those states, the limit is quite low. Massachusetts is just a million bucks. So you're going to want to get assets out of your estate. So the state of Massachusetts, if you were a resident in that state, doesn't take a good chunk of that at your death, merely because you died in their eyes, quote unquote, wealthy. Yeah, so there's 12 states ah, plus, 12. plus the District of Columbia thirteen that have... An estate tax. There are six that have inheritance taxes, and Maryland is included in both of those because it has both. Ah, oh wow, really, Maryland? Maryland Shame, 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 Maryland. Get get you coming and going. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, (laughs) Just for those who don't know, an estate tax is a tax that is levied on the estate at your death. An inheritance tax, yes keys off of your death, but your estate doesn't pay it. The recipient pays it. It's an inheritance tax. They're the ones who are going to pay a tax because they received an inheritance. So it's the difference between an estate or inheritance tax. Anyways, back to this. Because at the state level, the limits can be very low, the game is to get wealth out of your estate. But in order to do that, you have to complete it as a gift. You can't have dominion and control anymore. The the other elements, donor must have intent to make a voluntary transfer. That is an element. That that is an element. You can't be incapacitated. And if you didn't give the ability, this is why we go back, this all ties in, go back to powers of attorney. If you don't specifically or expressly give someone in your power of attorney the ability 
to make a gift, they can't make a gift and do planning prior to your death if you needed to reduce estate taxes. If, if survivors are trying to optimize the tax situation before your demise. However, you have to be careful if you give that gift because theoretically that could be abused by the agent now. If you just unilaterally say, oh yeah, the agent can make gifts as well. All of a sudden, everybody the agent knows is getting gifts of your assets. But not giving an agent the ability to make a gift could come back and cause harm, tax harm. So you really have to talk to an attorney. And, and in that section, gifting, that's huge. What if you are a grandparent who is paying for grandchild's education and you name your child as agent in your POA? And now you became incapacitated. If you didn't expressly grant the ability to continue to gift your assets to that grandchild, your child, who's your agent, can't continue those gifts. And all of a sudden, the source dries up. But what if you just said in your POA that you hereby grant your child the ability to make gifts? And boom, not only is the college being paid for, all of a sudden the kid is no longer going to CSU, they're going to Harvard. And all of a sudden, instead of paying 15000 a year, I have no idea how much it is to go to CSU, Chris probably does, 75000 is going, and I have no idea if that can send you to Harvard for a year. So you have to be careful. You can be damned if you do, damned if you don't, with gifting. Anyways, back to the dominion and control part of this whole tirade I'm going on. You often see people wanting to get assets out of their estate, but the biggest problem when they make a gift is the assets are out of their estate. It's out of their control. It can no longer be used to help them. And that's where some very unique trusts, usually grantor trusts, are set up where you can actually get assets out of your estate legitimately and legally, but still retain some power and control over it. And it gets a little, because way too deep for this podcast, but that's where these concepts come in. People understand that, geez, I'm going to be taxed at my death. I've got to do something. But when they hear they're going to give up control, Dominion and control, that's, that'll scare me too. That holy moly, what if, what if I change my mind? So you have to be really careful when making gifts and a good estate planning attorney can construct trusts with enough leeway in them that you would feel a little bit more comfortable giving up this access and control. Okay, next one. Fern. I don't make up these names. I don't know who would name their kid Fern. But, and if there's a Fern out there, it's a very nice name. But Fern is making her first. See, her. I would have thought Fern was a guy. I don't know. Fern. Does that sound male or female to you? Female. Vern sounds male to me, but. Oh. Fern to me just sounds male. Hmm. Anyways, Fern is you, making her. When you talk to your plants at home, do you refer to them as males? <laughs> Some. Hey, buddy. How's it going? How are your roots? <laughs> How are your roots? Yeah. <laughs> well, for instance, on my squash plants, there are male, not male and female squash plants, but male and female flowers. Mm-hmm. 
So I'll sometimes say hi to the male and hi to the female. The female keep me around asking me how my day was and, you know, what are you thinking? And the male is just, yep, fine. So it's real easy. Now, that was a sexist little joke. That's all. Okay. Fern is making her required minimum distributions for 2022. Her calculated distribution is $12,500. So that's her RMD, folks, for mm-hmm. 2022. Okay. 12500 Fern has already distributed $8,000 as of December 31st, 2022. What will she have to pay in penalties for not meeting her 2022 distribution? So she's paid 8000 out so far? 8 out of 12500 mm. So she's... Missing $4,500 of an RMD, which if that happens and she doesn't take corrective action in time, she's going to owe at that time when this question was posed 50% of what was supposed to be taken that wasn't taken. So she's got a penalty of $2,250 facing her. Chris is correct. And I, I had an issue with that. I got the answer right. But I had an issue with this. But you hit the nail on the head. When I was first doing this, I'm thinking, it's, it's not a 50% penalty anymore. It's a 25% penalty. And you can get as little as 10 if she was to fix it before the tax filing deadline. And, and based on the question she has, mm-hmm. uh, so it should only be 10% of 450. And 450 happened to be one of the answers. Oh, yeah. So I thought, well, they know this then, and no, they're wrong. No, no, they're trying to catch people that know the 10% early withdrawal penalty. But the, since this, remember, these questions, it's 2023, these questions came in 2022 and right. 2021 yep. before Secure 2 passed that got rid of the 50% penalty. But even then, I was thinking in my head the mm-hmm. answer should be zero because you'll file for them 5498, right. promise never to do it again, and you won't be assessed a penalty. Because as I said, prior to Secure 2, where they lowered the 50% penalty to 25% and to as little as 10% if you fix the missed RMD by the tax filing deadline. Prior to all that, no one had, none, not one of our clients who ever missed an RMD was assessed the 50% penalty. None. And we did it by filing, I call it the mea culpa form, 5329 filling it in, writing a letter, never assessed a penalty. So I was reading way too deep into this, but I knew where they were going um, with the answers because 2,250 was the only one, and that's when I remembered. Well, plus, oh, yeah. remember, you're, you're reading these to me as an open-ended question, and you're not giving me the A, B, C, D, which clearly would have had four. Oh, that's right. I didn't give you. Well, I did on the previous ones. I I didn't give you the A, B, C, D. So here's where they got it. A was 270 bucks. I have no idea. Any kid choose that, get a new career. 270 bucks. The 450, which was B, I thought, ooh, sneaky. Ooh, sneaky. (laughs) Yeah. They're taking the uh, $4,500 and assessing the 10% penalty on that, where if you. Admit the mea culpa prior, post-secure, prior to the tax filing deadline, you only owe 450 bucks. So I thought, oh, they knew that. But then the next answer was 2250 and I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. Now they're going for the 50% penalty, 
And that's when it dawned on me, oh, wait a minute. These questions are from 21 and 22. Mm -hmm. Uh, Secure 2 didn't pass until late 22 and took effect 2023, so that one um, is the correct answer. But do you think that 450 was purely accidental, or do you think it's what you said? They were basing it off of the 10% early withdrawal penalty. Probably that one. They have to provide wrong answers that people who don't quite know what they're doing will get. We'll so choose. they must have so, thought, oh, some kid's going to think it's the 10%, the 10% penalty. penalty. Right. Gotcha. Yep. And then another one was D, the full 4,500. Mm. Yeah. I don't know where the 270 would come from. That was the, gee, we can't think of any other reasonable wrong answers. So let's just pull out 270. That's, again, <laughs> the kid who answers that, find a new career. Okay, <laughs> next question. a little question. harsh, but okay. <laughs> This one, every single listener to this mm-hmm. podcast, if you're a Vanguard mm-hmm. VG do-it-yourselfer, if you get this wrong, you, you take your left hand, because I'm left-handed, and smack yourself upside the back of your head. And that's from me. So there's the dare. And if you get this mm-hmm. wrong, you take both your hands and Uh-oh. smack yourself up across the side of your head. Okay, all you do-it-yourself investors, there is no reason why you should get this question wrong. Which of the following is a example of unsystematic risk. Here we go to systematic and unsystematic. Uh, we'll get into this in a second, what the two are. Which, is an, excuse me, which of the following is an example of unsystematic investment risk? Interest rate risk, exchange rate risk, purchasing power risk, business risk. Okay. Give people a moment to think about that. Do you want to read them again for people who are trying this at home? <laughs> every, every listener is going to get If you are a Vanguard VG do-it-yourself investor, which of the following is an example of unsystematic risk? Interest rate risk? Exchange rate risk? Purchasing power risk? Business risk? And I will pause there. Mm. One of the three wrong answers did get me going a little bit. I was started to read a little bit too much into it, but one could draw a conclusion that that could have been the example of unsystematic risk as well. Well, the answer is D, business risk. That is the heart and soul of unsystematic risk, otherwise known as firm-specific risk or diversifiable risk or some of the alternative names that that goes by. But were you thinking that the exchange rate yeah, risk? Yeah, exchange be, rate risk. I just see, thought... I don't think so because that's, that's uh, systematic in its, its issue regardless of the firm you're invested in. But, As an investor, if you've got exchange rate risk, it's going to apply to all firms equally. It would. And again, I tend, I started to go down a little bit of a route. I knew it was business risk. It's right there yeah. uh, because unsystematic risk, again, uh, refers to risk associated with a particular security or a particular company or a particular industry. And that's what business risk is. Business is that business. You buy a stock in XYZ company, that company could go out of business. That's unsystematic risk. It can be diversified away. Systematic risk spreads throughout the entire market, and it's difficult to solve with solely diversification. 
I just started thinking, well, what if you have one company based in Europe and one company based in the United States? And I started to go down that route. And I was like, no, 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 no. The answer is business risk. Yeah. Uh, and that's what it is. So I, I think all our listeners should have gotten that one right. Okay, a couple more so we can wrap this bad boy up because you were yapping way too long. Okay, uh, two more questions. Uh, the company name is Tax Filers Limited Liability Corporation. So we'll just call it Tax Filers LLC. Tax Filers LLC would like to set oh, this one. This one we're going to go by quickly because very few people here are going to have a simple uh, IRA plan. Uh, I'll just ask it to you, Chris, see if you can nail this one. You may not even get this one. Um, and the only reason I knew the answer to this one, we have a simple plan. Tax Files LLC would like to set up a simple plan for their employees. They only have two employees, and each makes $400,000. The company will make the non-elective contribution option as their employee benefit. What amount will be contributed for each of the two employees. You guys, on this question, you, this is definitely a professor-written question. They're just trying to see if the, the kids know the difference between the non-elective contribution option uh, or not. So the answers are $6,100, $8,000, $9,150, $9, or $14,000. I didn't realize that was the direction they were going. What were they making again? What were they? Who to what? Oh, 400000 400000 each. And the, and the answers were? 6100 8000 9150 or 14000 Hmm. Hmm. Do, 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 do. Oh, just guess. 16,000. That wasn't even one of the answers. I thought that was you said the last <laughs> no, one. No, I said 6,100, <laughs> 8,000, yeah. 9,150, or $14,000. Oh, 14,000. Mm. What they're trying to measure here, folks, when you set up a simple plan, you can put in, as the business owner, yeah. you can put in 2%. For everyone, whether they contribute to the simple or not. That's what it was, yeah. Or 3% only on people who contribute. Right. They chose the 2%, whether right. the partners contribute or right. not. This right. isn't a practical exit. It's not right. how I don't think a company of two would actually set this up. I would no. look more uh, at, a, at a safe harbor 401k for this person. But anyways, it doesn't matter. Yeah, I knew it was off from the three, and I thought it was the other direction. That's when that's why my mind went to sixteen because I'm thinking, well, three percent is for participants, so four percent. But I was no, but I, see I was where they where they got I was, I where, was opposite where they were going to get mm-hmm. the kids on this, yeah. and I see how they did it because the first you know they they said two um, percent of four hundred thousand is how they get the eight hundred thousand. Uh, 14000 which I think was the, the cap ba- back then, a couple of years ago, that you could put in. Mm-hmm. So I see how they came up with some of these answers. The key is, and this has nothing to do, so I want to move on to it quickly. When you do the 2% non-elective contribution, in other words, whether the employee puts money in or not, they're going to get 2%. Mm-hmm. There's actually a capped level of competa- comp- not mm-hmm. competition, compensation 
And that was at the time that this was written, three hundred and five thousand. See, that's what my that's where my mind was going, and that's where I thought the fourteen came off the sixteen, and that I was had in my mind, and that's why the eight didn't make sense to me either. So, isn't this wrong? No, it's two percent of three hundred and five thousand. Or six thousand one hundred. Oh, that's the right answer. Yeah, six thousand one hundred. Okay, so yeah. it's not the eight thousand. Yeah, no, 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 no. They were trying to say, oh, two yeah. percent of four hundred thousand. Right, right, right. That's right, where they were going right. to yeah. get them. Yeah. No, I was trying to think of what the cap would have been, and I didn't remember it exactly, but I thought it was high two hundreds. You said it was just over three hundred, so I was off just a little bit, and then I was doing my math, and then I got all flustered. The key and with the this way, question so, yeah. for the kids, yep. it's a memorization question. Yeah. Do you need to know, let's say back, this question came out in 2002 because it says in the answer, uh, 2002. So in 2002, the limit was 305000 Nobody needs to know that. Chris and I say this repeatedly. And we often say, I can't remember what the limit is today, Chris. Google it and find out. You don't need to know what these are. You just need to know it exists so you could Google it. The 2002 contribution limit for non-elective... 2022. 2022. uh, For non-elective simple contributions. Google that, boom, 305,000. But they were measuring that the kid is going to know it. That's a useless tidbit of information just (laughs) cluttering a very limited brain. They might have had those in front of them. I don't know that for sure, though. Oh, I mean, that, that would that's be the nice type if of, they that, gave That's it. a lot of that kind of stuff you've got in front of you during some of these tests, exactly for the reason you mentioned. Memorizing those things doesn't make any sense, especially when they change every single year. So. Right. And what they were trying to measure is to make sure, because the 3%, folks, that 3%, unlike the, the cap, that is based on your, your income. It's based on your full compensation. 3% of your compensation or 2% up to 305000 whether you contribute or not. So that's the two differences, and that's what they were looking for here. This was a tough question. This one, I'll mm-hmm. give them. That one was a tough question. Okay, this is the last question. So we can clap for that because you're going to hear me shut up pretty soon. The show will wrap up. But this is supposed to be the hottest question. And I thought the simple question was pretty hard for, mm-hmm. for many people. So this, drum roll, please, now. this is the hardest question on Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? Carol died this year with a gross estate of $15 million. This is a good question. Mm-hmm. A bypass trust was created using the lifetime exemption amount. She directed... One point, and before I read on, this was based on 2022, just so everybody knows. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Carol died this year, 2022, with a gross estate of $15 A bypass trust was created using her lifetime exemption amount. She also directed her estate to leave $1.5 to her son. And all residual property beyond to her spouse. What is the amount of the unlimited marital deduction utilized? This, again, is a needless question because you can Google a lot of this, but you have to know the math behind it. So what Carol was doing, folks, is she set up, as Chris Do you need to read this one more time? Because I'm going to explain to our listeners what's going on as you try to figure it out. Did you get all the numbers? 
I think so. 15 million user lifetime in a bypass, giving uh, 1.5 million million to the the son. Everything else to the hubby. All else to the husband. Okay. So what a bypass trust is going to do, she's going to take her exemption amount, the amount that the government says you could leave to a person and not have to pay estate taxes. She's going to put the exemption amount in the bypass trust. She's going to give another million and a half to her son, and whatever's left, her will directs to leave all of those assets to her husband. Mm -hmm. What is the amount of the unlimited marital marital deduction used? In other words, how much is finally going to get the husband? husband, right, exactly. That's what they're asking. Which could be of any amount and not be affected at that time by estate taxes. Because husbands or wives, surviving spouses, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. pay no estate taxes Mm -hmm. until they die. They're going to nail it, but they'll just wait until they die. Right, exactly. So 2022, I think the the limit was right around $12 So as long as we... $12,080,000, if you want to be technical. Okay. I'm going to use round numbers. So 12 million. So of the 15 million, 12 goes into the bypass trust using her lifetime exemption, eating up that whole 12 million bucks. Then she gives a million and a half to the son, which is going to be subject to estate taxes because she has no more limit herself to, to use up the other million and a half to bring it up to 15, which goes to the husband is going to get the unlimited maritable marital deduction. Correct. Clap, 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 clap. What they're measuring here, and again, this doesn't apply, and a lot of you might be saying, okay, Jim, hard question, but what, what does it matter? How many people have 15 million? Excellent point, except one small issue. It's going to drop to $5 million January 1st of 2026. Now, that $5 million is going to be adjusted for inflation over the past decade. So it's estimated to be, in my opinion, somewhere around $7.5 million up to maybe $8 million, somewhere around there, probably closer to, to 7.5. That is going to be the new de, um, deduction amount, if, if you will, the, the lifetime exemption amount. So it's going to go from a very high uh, 12 million, 80,000 last year, I don't know what it's this year, uh, and drop back down, estimated to be about 7.5 or so million dollars. Still a big number, but there are many... Many people in Congress who want to lower that even more. And that's why it's important you understand the concepts they were trying to get the kids to understand. You don't see bypass trusts too much anymore because the exemption amounts are so large. Mm -hmm. I don't think, normally speaking, Carol would have set up this whole strategy, the idea of a bypass trust or a marital trust, and you can get into different types of bypass trust, creditor, sheltered trust, all this kind of stuff, is that money would go into the trust and allow the spouse to live off of it, uh, usually a certain percentage, and allow the surviving spouse to also access for health, education, maintenance, or support, which is called a HEMS. But that spouse cannot then leave that money to to whoever they choose. It's not really theirs. They have access to it. They can benefit from it. They can dip into it if they have to. But at the second spouse's death, those assets may go to someone else and be completely protected from any future estate 
taxes because it was shielded with the lifetime exemption amount. So that lifetime exemption amount goes into the trust. A million and a half goes to the kid and Chris's round numbers. A million and a half goes to the kid. Whatever's left can go to the husband and it too would be exempt. Now the kid's money would be subject to estate taxes. That's why I think, honestly, Chris, to me, the kid gets the million and a half first. Then you could put you could put the rest if you wanted into the entire bypass mm-hmm. trust and the husband right. gets nothing. But this trust wouldn't have been set up this way. I don't think. You're gonna put the entire amount in the bypass trust, leave a million and a half to the kid, and make that reduce by the estate tax, and then leave a million and a half to the husband. Mm-hmm. I think that I, I think, don't think it would work that way. I think they do it differently as well. Yeah. But. They most likely would have used some of her exemption amount to protect the million and a half to the kid, mm-hmm. stated dollar amount to the husband, and whatever's left shield with my remaining exemption amounts. Mm-hmm. And then any exemption amount not used, DSU, deceased spouse's unused exemption could be given to the husband in portability and he could use it going forward. That's how that would be structured and no estate taxes would be owed. So I was a little, I I dug too deep into the question, but they were just measuring the ability for someone to do the calculation. Follow through the math, right, exactly. And why I again say this is important. If you are one that lives in a state within a state tax, especially one like Massachusetts with just a million dollar exemption, these types of trusts are still very, very, very common in your state. And for everyone else who thinks I got nothing to worry about, even if they drop it back to five million and they adjust it for inflation to seven and a half million, God, I'll never have that. I think that number is going to go even lower in the future. It's low hanging fruit to the voting masses, to just appeal to them that they're going after the quote-unquote evil rich. And no one should be able to give more than a million dollars or two million dollars to someone. Everything else has to pay their quote-unquote fair share of that whole thing. Because truly wealthy people, folks, the people with hundreds of millions of dollars and billions of dollars, they don't pay estate taxes. Trust me, folks, they don't pay estate taxes. And it's why they pay, they pay very high-priced attorneys and lawyers, and they can structure them with grantor trusts, life insurance trusts, and even the, um, I don't want to say a donor-advised fund, but their own family foundation, which is the biggest tax shelter scam for rich people going is to put money into that, name your family members as board members, and all of a sudden that that money that you put aside in your own family foundation can be used to fly your family members all over the country. Wealthy people pay no estate taxes. Any change in the estate tax is going to nail the listeners to this podcast. Those of you with three, four, five, six, seven million dollars today, that could grow to a nice amount even after you spend it later. That's the low hanging fruit. And I really do feel at some point you're going to see the seven and a half million 
go down even more. That's me opining. That's my opinion. Chris can think it's worthless. I'm going to let him wrap up this show. You can think it's stupid as well. I don't care. I just think it's the low hanging fruit. If you've got hundreds of millions of dollars and billions, trust me, you're not paying taxes. They've got this thing nailed down. What are your thoughts before you wrap up? Um, Well, my thoughts are the show has gone extra long, so (laughs) we do need to wrap up. But uh, yes, I agree that that, uh, the money spent on lawyers um, that, that the rich tend to have access to is what they pay in lieu of a lot of the taxes that, that regular people t- pay because there's just so many opportunities for uh, manipulation, loopholes, whatever you want to call them. Um, and, uh, you know, so that's not the world most of us all live in, so we've got to live within these other rules, which right now, you know, a state, the, the lifetime exemptions are so high, it doesn't apply to very many people, so you don't have to really worry about most of this stuff. But those limits are going to start coming down. It's going to become, you know, more topical, more more relevant to more and more people as those limits uh, decline. So it's definitely something to keep on your radar uh, and don't always, you know, don't get too trapped by uh, uh, recency bias or or your normalcy bias, which is one you didn't mention, where you just think, oh, the current situation we have now, that's going to be how it is. We don't, nobody has to worry about the estate limits because they're so huge, you know, not even on the radar anymore. No, it should kind of be on your radar, especially if you've got accounts that are growing over time, which is the whole point of having a lot of the accounts during the accumulation phase. And if you're not going to spend them yourself, they may very well continue to grow even in retirement and you could find yourself trapped by some of these, uh, uh, taxes. So yeah, always be aware, heads up, pay attention, listen to what Congress is doing, etc., and be prepared to pivot if it's not part of your plan right now. So, Excellent. Yeah. Well, thanks, Jim. And um, do we have a topic for next EDU show or is it going to be a surprise? No, we do have a topic mm-hmm. and I cannot remember what it is, but I know I oh. have it. <laughs> oh no, I know it. It okay. is an article and I don't, we're going to, from Smart Asset, I'll call them out, that was just full of wrong information. Mm. I was appalled. Uh, and we're going to talk about that article because they, it had to do a little bit with estate planning, but not much, but a little bit with IRAs and estate planning where the author just didn't know the laws, didn't know the rules. And this was a recent one I pulled off of Yahoo Finance. Mm. So it wasn't an old one? That was no, a, not at all. Oh, this is brandy right. new. Mm. Just Poor information. I, mm-hmm. I don't think the – and Smart Asset, and we'll talk about them, is a billion-dollar revenue company. They've got hundreds of authors. I, I just think the editor dropped the ball on this one. I don't really mm-hmm. want to throw the reporter under the bus. They wrote what they thought was correct. The editor's job is to pick up on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, just totally muffed, totally muffed what happens to IRAs when people die. Mm-hmm. So anyways, Interesting. we'll okay. chat about that. Sounds good. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening. And we'll be with you again next week with a brand-new show. You have listened to Jim on the radio, read his quotes in the media, and enjoyed his banter on iTunes. But even now, you may wonder what sets Jim Salmier and Associates apart from other financial planning companies. The answer is quite simple. Jim's diverse team of professionals specializes in retirement planning. They form a lifelong relationship with you and measure their success not through product sales, but through the security and prosperity you may achieve in your retirement. 
Jim's entire team shares his unwavering commitment to placing their clients' best interests first while offering their services at fair prices with full disclosures. The professionals at Jim Saulnier & Associates are available to assist you with your retirement planning needs. Visit jimhelps.com to schedule your complimentary coffee and a second opinion meeting. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S, dot com. Or call 970-530-0556. The Retirement and IRA Show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier & Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. 